Hello and welcome to Podularity, the online books programme that brings you authors and books in a pod. My name is George Miller, and my guest in this first programme for April 2010 is British journalist Victoria Clark. Victoria is the Observer's former bureau chief in Moscow, and now writes freelance for a number of publications and radio stations. To write her latest book, Yemen, Dancing on the Heads of Snakes, Victoria returned to the country where she was born, but left aged two, and immersed herself in its history, culture and politics for several years. As she writes in her introduction, the last half-millennium of Yemen's past can briefly be summarised as a series of failed attempts on the part of outside powers to substitute Yemeni's hardy tribal structures and values with those of first Ottoman and British imperialism, then Nasserite Arab nationalism and Soviet-style Marxism. And even since the country was united just two decades ago, there have been a civil war and long-smouldering separatist conflicts. Add to this an exploding population, meagre oil resources, dwindling water supply, and a culture long used to bearing arms, and it's perhaps unsurprising that the country which Osama bin Laden's father came from has become the focus of international attention as Al-Qaeda's base on the Arabian Peninsula. We spoke about terrorism later in the interview, but I began by asking Victoria about her own personal relationship with the land she was born in. We left Aden, which is now the second city of Yemen, when I was two. So I have no direct memories of the place. But on the other hand, there's plenty of material in the family photograph albums. And from those albums, I have a picture of a bright, white-lit, always sunny, and my parents uh, looking very young and glamorous. And so Aden, for me, is, has extremely happy connotations. So when I first heard of it uh, again, really, in the news, was it was 2000, before 9-11, of course, a year before, when Al-Qaeda blew up the USS Cole in Aden Harbour. And somehow this wasn't the Aden that I had any notion of. And uh, I think that began to awaken my interest in the place. That event in, in 2000 was really the, the first time that Yemen had been in the international head, headlines for, for decades, wasn't it? That's true. I think the last time we could say that Yemen was in any international headlines was when the British were pulling out in 1967. So that's almost 40 years of um, obscurity and then sudden explosion onto the stage. And so what persuaded you from, from that moment of sort of reawakened interest to actually decide to devote a considerable amount of, of time and, and energy to exploring this country? I think as the Al-Qaeda problem became more and more prevalent, and certainly after 9-11, I began noticing more and more links that the movement had with Yemen. And I think the real turning point was when I realized that bin Laden's father came from Eastern Yemen, which used to be a part of the Eastern Aden Protectorate, which the British ruled until 1967. So when bin Laden's dad left home to emigrate to Saudi Arabia, he left British-ruled Yemen. And I thought, that's very interesting. So there was a time when the Brits knew very, very intimately what was going on in this now extremely remote and exotic and rather dangerous-sounding place. I'd like to fill in the gaps here. So do you remember your first impressions when you went back? How did the country strike you? Well, Sana'a, um, the capital, which of course was never ruled by Britain, 
It was incredibly exotic and, and beautiful place. I'd never seen anything like it. It was, it was surreal. It had something of Venice about it because through the middle runs what they call Asyla, which is the um, dry riverbed, which is used in the dry season as a road. And in the wet season, it suddenly fills with water through flash flooding and becomes a river and therefore impossible. But most of the time, it's, it's the main artery through the city. And I'd never seen anything like it. Very, very interesting place. Then um, when I went to Aden, I immediately felt at home, completely familiar to me. And I don't know why, except perhaps in the blood or something, because we didn't even have any pictures of Aden, the city, in our photo albums at home. So it was, it was very nice to go to Aden. Now, one thing which suddenly comes across from your book is that the, the historical and political situation in Yemen is very complicated. That's to put it mildly. So how did you begin to see a thread that would allow you to, to explore that, that history and those politics? That's an excellent question. It took me an awfully long time to be able to order my thoughts about the place and to make it into a a coherent narrative that would not be untrue to Yemen but would make sense to a Western reader without an overload of detail. And that's a real challenge because I think what I've learnt from um, this excursion into the Arab world and perhaps one of the most mysterious and um, long isolated areas of the Arab world is that it really works according to different priorities to the West, and it does make it very difficult to fit their reality into a reality that we would recognize, especially difficult. I, I haven't had as much difficulty with any of the other books I, I wrote. Mm. Is there a, a case, a genuine case to be made for Yemeni exceptionalism, that they are really unique and unlike any of the other countries on the Arabian Peninsula? Well, I think they are an exception in that they really are a very, very poor country, what oil they have is really a trickle and it's running out. So that's one point that's very important. Another point that's important is actually they do have a sense of being one people, which is something that is very rare in that region. In some way, a nation, perhaps not enough to make them feel that they can put together a functioning modern state, but they do feel like one people. So that's another interesting difference from their neighbours, I think. The other thing about them is that they have a very rich and proud ancient history. And in fact, the the people who are interested in genealogy in, in the Arab world are always very proud to be able to trace theirs back to Yemen. Yemen is where all things flow from. So there's, there's, there is something special about Yemen. I mean, you, you mentioned their, their sense of being a one people, but the modern political state of Yemen is only just over 20 years old, isn't it? That's true. The country was unified, um, North and South Yemen, in 1990. And it's been a very, very uh, rocky road. It hasn't worked. This is not a happy marriage at all right from the very beginning. It was hurried, it was bungled, the merger was uniquely badly handled, and both the authorities of the South and the North went into the marriage, as it were, with extremely conflicting delusions on both sides. So it's never worked, and it may not last. I, I've come away from Yemen now feeling that that's, it 
it could well fall apart. The real reason is not so much that they're that different people. As I say, they, they feel they're all Yemenis. But because of their history, at least three different parts of the country have, have a very different history. So the South has been ruled for 120-odd years by Britain, followed by 25 years of communist Marxist rule, totally different from the North, which had a sort of theocracy under an imam, followed by a military republic. So very, very different experiences. Now, you subtitled the book Dancing on the Heads of Snakes, and I wanted maybe to, to unpack that, because that's, that's sort of your, your governing metaphor as you, as you go through the book. And think about some of those snakes. I mean, what 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 would you say the principal snakes? I mean, the, the reference is to how difficult it is to to govern this state. Well, what's important about that uh, metaphor and that quotation is that um, it is something that the president says to any visiting foreign journalist when asked about the problems the country is facing. He complains that it's very difficult to rule. It's like dancing on the heads of snakes. Okay, so that's his view of it. And what I try to look at is how much is that true thanks to this very, very complicated and piecemeal history and strange experience that the country's had. Uh, So I look at the history first. And how much is it due to the fact that actually he is not ruling the place efficiently, actually, and he's, in fact, insulting his people, and it's his fault that uh, the place is out of order. So that's, that's how I structure the book. I would say that when he talks about dancing on the heads of snakes, he's really using it as an image to describe how difficult it is to reconcile strong, conflicting interest groups in the country whether it's the businessmen in the middle of the country, whether it's the, the big tribesmen all over the country in various parts, the, the people dealing with the oil, the military people. He, his way of ruling is to try and cajole, to flatter, to bribe, to reconcile, to mediate, and so on. So it's a constant negotiation. There is no real acceptance that this is a state these are its institutions which are strong, which are neutral, which cannot be overturned. It's, a, it's highly personal. Everything in that country is highly personalised and the president is at the top of it. And, and it's partly his fault that it's like that because he's especially favoured the old tribal ways of handling things which have always been personalised like that and about mediation rather than direct rule. Is it perplexing? given what you've just said about him not actually ruling, the fact that he has been in power for 30 years? I think it's um, a testament to the fact that this is a reasonable way of ruling an Arab country. In fact, it may be the only way of ruling an Arab country, but it only works for as long as there is money. And the thing is that he has been terribly lucky. He came into power in '79 when there was enough money coming into the country from Yemeni emigre workers sending it back from Saudi Saudi Arabia, from the, the other Gulf countries. So there was money at that time. And then no sooner did that become a little problematic for various reasons and not so much money, then Yemen's trickle of oil came on tap. And so there was money from that. And he had money to, to bribe, to cajole, to flatter, whatever. And what is happening now is that money is running out and the new sources of money are not clear 
So when America says, oh, you've got a terrible Al-Qaeda problem, and uh, the president says, uh, yes, yes, we haven't got the money to really tackle it, here's a new source. He, it's in his interest in some ways to talk up his Al-Qaeda problem and get lots of money from, from the West. So this is the way he's ruled the country, and uh, I don't know how long he can keep this dance up. I think you sort of signal the fact that if the money runs out, then he's going to have a problem with the military and he's got a very bloated civil service and that those those two pillars are going to um, stop supporting him. I think that's quite likely to happen and some people uh, would say that, that his inability to pay his civil service and his military, that crisis is likely to take place in about 2012, so he hasn't got much time. Hmm. Now you mentioned tribalism and I just wanted to get, to get you to, to say a little bit about what that actually means because I think for many Westerners that is such an alien concept that it would be beneficial to explain how that sort of works. I think what I took away from my experience in Yemen as the key thing about tribalism is that the leader of a tribe, a sheikh, does not consider himself to be an absolute ruler of his tribe and nor is he treated as such. His job has various aspects. He is a mediator, he is a wise man, he is a fountain of trickle-down wealth hopefully from his own businesses or, or direct to him from the president and he's a counsellor, and he's just, and that sort of thing. He is more like a referee than a ruler. And that means that it makes it extremely difficult to impose order and governance on such people, because if they don't like their sheikh, they're quite likely to kick him out and replace him. And so there's a, a sort of shifting. Again, we're, to, we're in negotiation land. We're not in institutions that can be trusted and relied upon and uh, used as neutral tools. Now, you mentioned the USS Cole right at the beginning, and inevitably the reason why the world's eyes are on Yemen is its al-Qaeda associations. Can you say something about why Yemen has been such a a fertile recruiting ground and, and haven for Al-Qaeda in the past decade? I think wherever you get areas of land that are not governed, you can easily get all sorts of things springing up, not just Al-Qaeda, but uh, as is the case in Yemen, you can anything you want you can find in Yemen in the way of a, a religious fraction, a, a movement of some sort. So there's that. There's also the fact that Yemen along with a, a reputation as, as a sort of a centre, a backbone of the Arab world in some, thanks to its ancient history, it also has a reputation as a place that exports fighters. This is a, a country where, from the age of 15, a boy is likely to have a gun if he's a tribesman. That's uh, a sort of rite of passage. He gets his gun and um, he is a fighter by nature. That's that's his truest nature, as it were. So they make good mercenaries, and a lot of them went off to Afghanistan to fight the Soviets in a jihad there. And especially when I say a lot of them, a lot of them from the south of Yemen. Why? Because they were ones who did not like having their area ruled by communists. They particularly hated the godless infidel Russians. So they had a very, very good reason to go and fight jihad against them in Afghanistan before, with any luck, bringing the jihad home to fight them in 
South Yemen. And as part of the research of the book, you met people who were highly placed and, and close to Osama bin Laden. I'm thinking in particular of Tariq al-Fadli, whom you, you sat down with. And tell, tell me about, about him and what you sort of gleaned from interviewing him. Well, Tariq is one of these people who fought jihad in Afghanistan and knew bin Laden, was respected by bin Laden, because he, Tariq comes from a sheikh's family in the south of Yemen and therefore has a tribal following and some influence. He was, like bin Laden, an exile from the south. When the communists came in, a lot of South Yemenis just fled, and a lot of them fled to Saudi Arabia to get away from the communist uh, purges. Tariq al-Fadli's family did that. They fled to Saudi Arabia. So he went off on jihad to Afghanistan from Saudi Arabia. And he was definitely one of these who felt that now we've got rid of the Russians from Afghanistan. That's marvelous. Time to go home. I'm not going home to Saudi Arabia. I'm going home to my ancestral home, South Yemen, and we'll get rid of the communists from there. And uh, that's the way to start cleansing the uh, Arabian Peninsula of communists. So that's what he was involved in until 1994. And that was a goal which was very much favoured by the president who hated the communists in South Yemen as well, wanted to get rid of them. So he, Tariq, and the president worked together in this project. But um, he's really consistent as a nationalist. I mean, what he cares about is his land. And what he doesn't like now is the fact that he feels betrayed by the president because a lot of people in the South have had their land sort of requisitioned by the Northerners since unification. And um, Tariq is fed up and he's declared himself in favour of re-independence for the South. And um, he's he's a most interesting and rather delightful character, I must say. He The, the other day I... Uh, heard that he had raised the American Stars and Stripes in his compound, um, his large house where he lives on the edge of a roundabout not far from Aden, raised the Stars and Stripes and sung a couple of American national anthems in order to demonstrate to the world in general that he was not Al-Qaeda, that he's very in favour of the West, but he is also in favour of South Yemeni independence. So he, he's an interesting character. I think you used the word time bomb at one point in the book. I think you're referring to the, the Saudi attitude to this state, to their south. And suddenly when you think about it, you think about poverty and potential water shortage and demographic increase and lots of young men and also this tradition, this sort of cultural tradition of, of being a fighter. I mean, and so in those circumstances, time bomb doesn't seem like a an overreaction? No. You can um, add up all these aspects and say, yes, this is a really urgent problem. What better, more convenient place for Al-Qaeda to base itself, etc. On the other hand, the longer I spent in Yemen, the more I saw another side that suggested that I would be very surprised if Yemen became an Al-Qaeda land in the way that Afghanistan was once Taliban land. You know, it it won't do that because of the different histories and interests of the different regions that I was talking about earlier, that they don't 
all it's not it's not a very homogeneous state they've got all sorts of things going on and all sorts of different connections all over the gulf and uh, for example the area where bin laden's father came from that place is connected to east africa through trade and southeast asia it's very 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 um particular and complex and the idea of a sort of blanket Sharia law and uh, Al-Qaeda ideology it just doesn't add up to me. I can't see it happening in Yemen. Mm-hmm. They are very sensible, pragmatic people and, as well. And I think uh, another thing I learned about the Yemeni tribes, whether from the north or the south, it's their land and money that counts and nothing else in the end, not ideology. Tell me a little bit about the relationship between Yemen and Saudi Arabia to the north, because you write about how the Saudis use money in order to control aspects of Yemeni society. And you talk about how they've exported Wahhabism, a puritanical form of Islam, and they've also built high-security border controls in order to keep the the Yemenis from from flooding across the border. So how would you characterize that relationship, which is clearly critical to both states? I'd say the Saudis are very worried about Yemen contaminating their country with illegal migrants, with guns, with drugs, with child prostitutes. I mean, every, every sort of evil seems to the Saudis to be coming from down south. They've got a lot of their army stationed down there near the border, and they are in the process, apparently, of building a big border defense to keep them out, a, a wall. So there's that going on. The Yemenis are humiliated, really, to be so dependent on Saudi for cash, and they hate the way that Saudi has uh, been paying their sheikhs to keep them quiet, to keep them on side, to keep them sweet, to keep them, yes, to keep them in favor of Saudi Arabia. So it's, it's not a happy relationship. It's not one of respect. The Yemenis are furious, really, that it's the Saudis who've managed to have enough oil to make themselves you know, princes and vast billionaires and uh, Yemenis who, with their proud and ancient history and their native wit who have nothing, really. Finally, can I ask you what you think the Western attitude to Yemen should be? I mean, clearly our attention is turned to it as, as never before, but there are, and we can think of examples, dangers of being interventionist in the affairs of another state. Everything I've learnt about Yemen's history and everything I've learnt about Yemenis since I visited there suggests that it would be extremely dangerous and extremely counterproductive to get involved there militarily. We should not be funneling funds and arms to the president to combat his al-Qaeda problem. It's more than likely that those arms and funds would be used to uh, put down the southern uh, insurgency, the, the people who want independence in the south, and that would throw them into the arms of al-Qaeda. It's a horrible, horrible danger, and we should be very, 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 very careful. Really, we should put as much pressure as we possibly can do on the president to solve his to come to some sort of arrangement with the southern insurgents in order that they are not still battling for independence, and um, to, to make some vitally needed reforms. My fear is that it's too late. Victoria Clark. Yemen, Dancing on the Heads of Snakes, is published by Yale University Press.
and is out now in large format paperback. That's all for this edition of Podularity, but there are lots more interviews to explore in the audio archive on the website at podularity.com. And subscribing to the podcast is free, quick and easy. Just go to iTunes and type Podularity in the search box. Subscribing is only two clicks away and means you won't miss any future programmes. I hope you'll join me again for the next programme, and until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.